0: In this episode, I feature Storm Asher, an artist, curator, writer, and founder of Superposition Gallery. Storm has a BFA in Visual and Critical Studies from the School of Visual Arts and an MA in Art Business from Sotheby's Institute and Claremont Graduate University. She worked at various galleries and institutions prior to starting her own curatorial program. In 2018, Storm founded Superposition Gallery as a nomadic gallery and curatorial platform with a mission to subvert gentrification tactics used in urban development through art galleries. Storm is a Forbes 30 under 30 2022 art and style honoree and was named in the new generation of black women gallerists by Artsy. She is curator for the Eastville Museum in Sag Harbor, Phillips, New York, Phillips, Los Angeles, and is slated to curate Light Residency's annual Miami Art Basel show in 2023. She contributed to the forward for the brilliance of the color black through the eyes of art collectors in 2021 and has contributed writing to Cultured, Phillips, the Getty Archives, to name a few. Storm has been featured in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, W Magazine, Artsy, and more. Enjoy this episode featuring Storm Asher and visit CerebralWomen.com for her expanded bio. Thank you. Storm, I am delighted to feature you. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be chosen
1: for this. I've been loving listening to all the episodes. Thank you. Such an honor.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy this very much. Let's begin. When in your life did you recognize your love of the visual arts?
1: Yeah, well, I started out actually in the performing arts industry. I was doing a lot of child acting. I was a theater kid. I was on a bunch of dance teams. And then once I actually went to college, I was a dance major and wanted to transfer into art because I actually started filming and documenting a lot of our performances and practices and everybody really liked the images. So I actually started out by taking photography classes and some painting classes. And then I actually wanted to make a portfolio to transfer to an actual art school not just a school that had an art department so that's how i ended up at sva
0: nice when did you decide that you wanted to curate so
1: actually my final year at sva we had a thesis show and i was asked to be the curator of our show and I was really addicted to studio visits already because I was much more behind than a lot of students that were there in terms of actually having an arts background. I had never been to an arts training school. A lot of other people had come from magnet schools specifically for art. So I was so addicted to like going to everybody else's studios and soaking up everything that I could. And one of the department directors suggested that I curate the show because I really liked also writing and really liked hanging things in different ways. So that was my first curatorial gig, actually, was our senior thesis show. And then they asked me to come back the next year for the graduating class below me. And I realized, oh, this is actually something I could do as a career. Even though I was also focused on my studio practice, it kept coming up more and more that I was really good at curating. And so it just kind of spiraled after that.
0: And what type of relationship do you like to have with artists?
1: Well, yeah. So it's interesting because I don't really see it as like a curator to artist relationship because they are also my peers. And I was in school with a lot of these people that originally started out at the gallery. So I see it kind of as artist to artist and just going over ideas together. And it's, it's really a friendship. And once we get down to the nitty gritty of like consignments and art dealing and all of that, I'm definitely there more as a role of mentorship and helping them with the business aspect. But that comes much later after we've created a friendship and trust within like them letting me know what their plans are with their work or what they're playing with so yeah it's kind of this nice reciprocal relationship
0: that's important and early on can you recall what artists you were really influenced by yeah, actually, Antoni Gaudi is a huge one,
1: specifically because I see architecture and art as one and the same. And when I hang shows, I really think about the site specificity of it. Um, Milton Glazer is another huge one who mentored me during my thesis project because he was really interested in how to make artwork that also could change minds. And so that was a really great opportunity where I actually got to interview him and work with him while I was at SVA. Uh He passed away during the pandemic, so I've been thinking about him a lot. Another artist is Anna Mendieta. I am just obsessed with her self-portraiture and the way that she's able to contort her face in all these different ways. I've always been interested in selfies and self-reflection. So that's a huge one for me as well in terms of a woman artist that I wish I could have met.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So during this phase when you were researching, exploring, was there a particular art movement that you favored? Yeah, it's hard to say a
1: movement before the movement that we're in right now. And I feel like I've been coining the term that it is the superposition movement, which is the name of my gallery. But it originally came out of this first curatorial idea of straddling multiple identities, being nomadic, being a multi-hyphenate. And I feel like if there was a word for that, which is what I see in a lot of my peers practices right now, it would be superposition.
0: And w- what does superposition mean?
1: Superposition is actually a physics term. Oh, <laughs> I was a, I was that's a why physician. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I used to be like a physics nerd in high school. And I, I was really into like how things are put together and why certain angles and shapes were like drawing me and this idea of sacred geometry but superposition in general means this idea of when observed you're looking at something that exists but when you look away it may or may not still be there so it's kind of this idea of being everywhere and nowhere at the same time And so that really plays into the gallery, which is like because we're popping up in different spaces and we don't have this brick and mortar permanent space. But also because there's a superposition of the artists that I work with and all the different media that they are attracted to and they're not being pigeonholed into one box. How did you come up with this? So the first show I did for Superposition was originally not as a gallery. It was just going to be an open call and I put it on all these different websites. It was right after I moved home to LA from SVA and I put out an open call basically asking people, do you feel torn? Do you feel like you're split in multiple identities. This could mean anything from your ethnic identity to your identity as an artist. Like, do you feel like you're a writer, but also a curator? Mm -hmm. I was kind of just reflecting how I was feeling right after graduating and seeing if anybody else felt that way. And I got so many responses that I couldn't fit that all into one show. So then I was like, okay, I guess this is actually a running idea that could go on forever because it ended up being this all encompassing word that I wasn't expecting. I thought maybe I was reaching at the time, but it's proven to be like
0: the best word I could have come up with. I'm excited for you. Let's talk about the Black Lives Matters movement. Mm. How do you feel to, well, let's talk about, has it impacted art institutions? And do you feel that's impact will be long lasting?
1: I definitely feel like there's already a change that I've seen in multiple institutions. I mean, the Black Art Fund at Perez Art Museum in Miami, the Hammer Museum is doing this whole focus on Bob Thompson, who really deserved recognition a long time ago. I definitely see a lot of solo shows now that are specifically to one Black artist. And in LA, I mean, in the 70s, LACMA was the first institution to put David Hammonds, Charles White, and Timothy Washington in a show as like the triple presentation of what is Black art. And it's so funny to me that that was such a rare thing when now we're seeing that everywhere. And I think it's beautiful. And I'm hoping that it's a lasting thing because I think the Black arts movement has this energy around it that was so fueled by the desperation of the pandemic and obviously the George Floyd and all the shootings that happened. But the movement itself, even though there's a lot of news and like a lot of different hype about this doesn't necessarily translate in my opinion to black artists make art, and that doesn't mean it's just black art, it's art. They may be responding to the black arts movement, but that still makes it an art piece. It doesn't make it only a black art movement piece. Um, so that's what I hope for in terms of the longevity of black artists and their careers and also these historical things that they're making. Maybe, yes, you can say it was made during this period of the black arts movement, but I don't see that as the only defining factor of why this is an art piece or why why it should be conserved
0: and do you have an opinion on the role of the black trustee oh i mean (laughs) that's a curveball (laughs) no i I love that because i mean it's a goal of mine but you know, there's,
1: there's so many financial barriers to that. And I feel that, you know, there's always a token trustee at some museum. There's always a token in institution in general, whether that's a school or a museum or 501c3 or what have you. But in terms of like museums that are actually Black-owned, I feel like that is where we can bolster this idea of getting rid of tokenism, specifically with the Southampton African-American Museum, Museum Hugh, which is based in New York, the California African-American Museum, and Eastville Museum, which is in Sag Harbor. These types of places are surrounded by Black art, but also Black people that are behind the scenes and really care about the stewardship. And the trustees should also reflect that. And I hope that one day I'm able to afford that. But at the same time, I hope that some of those barriers could be lifted so that there's different levels of involvement and also
0: suggestions. Thank you for mentioning those organizations. Um, Do you feel Black art can be defined? No, I, I think... Black
1: art sometimes can be defined if, say, you're saying who owns black art, right? We, I I did a show in 2019 in Miami with Zeal Co-op, which is a black organization. And the title was who owns black art question mark, which was like such a statement in question of like, okay, nobody owns anything. Like the term black art, nobody can own that, but also who is buying black art? is the question. But even if you buy something, it doesn't mean you own it. And I also feel like saying that art is of the diaspora or it's African art, like there's so many ways to come up with these terms. But black art as this blanket has become more and more difficult to subscribe to and mostly because I don't want to see this just be a trend. And I've heard a lot of non-Black people who, I I mean, I understand sometimes they may not realize the severity of what they're saying and how it could affect me, but asking me, okay, so when are you going to show some white artists? And it's like, it's not about white artists or Black artists. This is what I'm interested in. This is my background, my history. These are people I'm surrounded by. If it happens to be Black, it's Black. It happens to be Indigenous, it's Indigenous. So yeah, it's very earth-shattering to have people just be like, oh, well, Black art's a trend. It's like, no, it's not. It's going to continue just like any other ethnicity would continue making work.
0: You know, COVID has proven that history doesn't always repeat itself. hmm So yes, we can't predict whether or not this is a trend and whether or not it'll go away, based on what we've seen in the past. As long as you have people like you doing the work and supporting artists, that there's a strong chance things will change. More copies of you and me, (laughs) Phyllis. We need way more ladies out there. (laughs) Um, What do you feel is the purpose of art?
1: I think the purpose of art is to change minds in a positive direction. So changing a mind can be very damaging and you can really take advantage by having the power of creating things and what that does to the public when they see it or interact with it. So I think when you design something of dissent that helps really put a message in your head of, oh, I didn't think of it like that. And yes, of course, there's always like art is just supposed to be beautiful. But even art that is just beautiful to the eye still will make you think about, oh, well, is real life beautiful, which then we'll take you on that other train of, okay, I'm making comparisons. I'm aware of myself in the world, my place in the world. How does this artist see themselves in the world? And yeah. How do we just change someone's mind, whether it's for a political cause or even if it's just to make them feel better that day. Mm
0: -hmm. And what aspects of the art world frustrate you?
1: Hmm. Um, I would say because I am the embodiment of that multi-hyphenate personality that I was talking about. It's definitely frustrating to constantly be asked, so are you a writer? Oh, so you're a gallerist. Oh, but you're an artist. Oh, but you're a curator. Like, pick one. And I don't want to pick one. I'm not going to pick one. (laughs) I just think it's so silly that people are still thinking like that, especially because every single colleague of mine dabbles in all of these pots by now. So I think that's very antiquated. Another thing that really frustrates me is the gentrification that takes place when arts districts are Created by city developers and galleries that pop up in different cities that used to be for more low income communities. And that's why a gallery would be able to afford having a space there, right? But next thing you know, a $7 blue bottle coffee shop pops up, and then there's a Kith across the street, and all the artist studios that were on that block are being pricing out the artists. So that's something that is part of Superposition's mission statement. And why we are a nomadic gallery is because we don't want to contribute to that. And I think it's really important for gallerists to understand that they are part of a community. If they are posting up a brick and mortar space there, they have to interact with these people. They have to take note from what the community wants to see and what what artists are there that are being pushed out. How could they potentially give resources so that they can stay? And if they're not doing that, then they should leave.
0: And this idea, this position you have, do you know of other galleries similar to yours that have this same ambition, the same focus, same mission?
1: I've seen a few places, um, a few entities pop up recently that I think are great. Like maybe they'll have a sublease or they collaborate with other galleries to have a showing in a state that they may not have as much of a market in. Danny Baez, who founded Regular Normal, he's also nomadic in that way. I think his program's awesome. OT Projects in Los Angeles, they opened an aux space, like an auxiliary space, next door to their gallery. So we actually used their space last year for a solo show for Jessica Taylor Bellamy. And it was such an awesome way to be able to come home to LA where we founded our gallery and be next door to another gallery that understands what our mission statement is. And they kind of created this to be able to collaborate with us. So I think more gallerists are understanding this collaborative model and using and sharing space so that the footprint isn't as high. Change is good. Change is good. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you got to change up how you do things. So what are you excited about right now?
1: Uh, Well, right now, I'm currently in L.A. waiting for a bunch of artwork to be delivered because I am opening a show on January 19th called A Love Letter to L.A., and there's going to be over 24 artists in the show, mostly LA-based artists. And it's a really special iteration of Borrowed Space this time because we are collaborating with UBS. We are collaborating with Orange Barrel Media, which is a public art billboard project, which is going to be up on the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame. And then the space that we're using is Phillips Auction House's new gallery. They just opened their first outpost on the West Coast. And I was doing hard hat tours with them for the past year or so because I used to live very close to where their new space is. And they invited me to do a show there. And we've done some stuff with them in the past at the Eastville Museum, which they've sponsored, and also um, the House of Crown show in New York at their Park Avenue space that this space is so cool because it's so site specific to LA it's like right off of Santa Monica and I think Hauser and Wirth is opening up across the street but it's specifically really important because this is their first show introducing their gallery to LA while it's also our homecoming show because we were founded in LA in 2018. So I'm so excited to be able to kind of collaborate with all these LA artists who I've missed for a long time. And usually I bring all their work to New York and don't really get to see them. Yeah, it's really special. And then the other thing I'm excited about, which is happening literally a week after this show comes down is 154 Contemporary Art Fair, which is taking place in Marrakesh, Morocco. So I'm taking Audrey Lyle and Ambrose Rhapsody Murray to a a art fair presentation. It's going to be a dual presentation of a lot of textiles and paintings, and it's going to be our first international show. So we're finally <laughs> dipping our toe to the northern part of Africa because we're the sole U.S. gallery that's being represented at the fair. So I'm really excited that we have this opportunity because there's 20 galleries that were picked out of all these applications, and we'll be able to represent the African-American diaspora at this diasporic fair and 154 is also such a great model that has been really collaborative and in line with my gallery's mission statement because they are also very site specific a show that they did in Harlem at the Harlem Parish was so gorgeous and we did a a dual presentation with Audrey and Chine Do Nadibia and now we kind of have this nice relationship going where before I wasn't accepted into art fairs because I don't have a permanent space but a fair like 154 understands this idea of the nomad that they invited us which was so surprising to me thinking like oh i don't have a permanent address they're not going to accept us but they reached out and now we're going international with them it's so crazy so it's been a goal of mine to be international for a while and the pandemic just kind of like halted all of that so i'm just so excited to finally get superposition out of the States and really harness that as much as I can.
0: Oh, I'm excited for you. So where in the world do you want to go next?
1: Hmm. Well, I definitely want to explore Accra. Nyla Opianga, who's another artist I work with, spends half of her time there and in New York. So she's been telling me all the time, like, you have to come to Ghana, you have to come. And uh, also Lagos, another curator friend of mine, who's also a writer, multi-hyphenate. <laughs> her name's is Jare Das. And she spends a lot of time in Lagos and she's been inviting me for years to come to Lagos and figure something out to do a superposition. So I have my eye on those two cities
0: that's great wow you mentioned that you studied photography early on can you compare the appreciation of photography versus let's say paintings
1: Mm. yeah I mean I think for me photography was such an important foundation for being able to make paintings I mean, creating your scene, creating the viewfinder and what is in the frame, like translates to all the rest of the mediums in art. And yeah, I feel that I know that like in terms of the market, the photography market is less than the market for painting in terms of buyers, but they're one in the same to me. I think if you're creating something and you're capturing a moment whether that's a medium through technological device or a paintbrush, you're still making something and creating something that somebody else would see later that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. It's still your perspective. And people say, Oh, I can just take that on my phone. Like this isn't art. It's art. If, if you have a composition, it's art.
0: So next
1: question is what do you feel is the role of the artist? The role of the artist is first to have fun exploring. I think <laughs> People get really hung up on if someone likes one thing that they made and then they just keep making it over and over and over again in different colors or angles. And I'm a big pusher for just trying a completely different medium one day and then moving on, leaving it there like, oh, maybe I'll do charcoal. Maybe now I'll work with ink. I think people need to explore more how their perception can be put into the world in all of those different forms. And it's the same perception coming from that person. So, yeah, I think definitely having fun, making sure that they don't just settle for one medium. And if they are still at least understanding why other media exists and how does it inform like back to that question about photography or painting. It's like a lot of people photograph their work and then paint it, right? This immediacy that we have. And then I think the role of the artist also is to take control of their own market. And I think that's a very controversial thing to say. And I'll choose my words carefully because I know art is for art's sake, but it's so much better when an artist understands how this art world works and It's really rewarding for them if they're involved in those conversations and they're not just throwing their hands up and being like, okay, here's the work, deal with it. I don't want to know how any of this works. Like, I don't think I know one artist that I work with that doesn't have
0: these questions.
1: And I think it's their role to seek out those answers.
0: I like your perspective. It's fresh. Thank you so much for this conversation. This is going to be our last question. How do you want to impact the art world? Hmm.
1: I mean, I feel that so far I've impacted the art world by maintaining positive energy and energy of reciprocity. And I want to leave a mark about trustworthiness. I think you have to trust people to show them your work. You have to trust people that are putting on your work and displaying your work for you on on your behalf. But also there's a lot of violence that comes with having to take criticism from your work and I guess my attitude towards that is making sure that I am somewhat of a supporter to artists that deal with that trauma of, okay, now it's out there. I can't control how it's perceived. And I want to always bolster this idea of like, yeah, it's out there. You can't control it, but great. You did it, you know? Yeah. Just more positivity, more support and more women gallerists in the future that I could see like me out there.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for all that you do, your drive, your ambition, and your desire. I I really appreciate this. This
1: is great. Thank you, Phyllis. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks Podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.